Have you ever thought about how the people of the first century church were discipled? How did they grow in their faith? So much has changed in 2100 years. How did they learn the Bible? How did they learn how to be Christians way back in the first century? I mean, there were no printed Bibles. I mean, the New Testament itself was still being written. We're in First Thessalonians studying a church that came about around 49 or 50 A.D. And the New Testament wasn't even completed until around 90 A.D. with the book of Revelation. I mean, there was no fundamentals of the faith workbooks, no Operation Timothy, no discipleship guides, no fill in the blank little questionnaires and short questions, you know, and short answers to begin to learn how to be a Christian. Nobody had to read through the Bible in a year plan. Didn't exist. I mean, the Bible, as we know it, didn't exist. Certainly the Old Testament existed, the Older Testament, but people didn't have access to that. Those scrolls were locked up in the synagogues. How did the average Joe grow in their faith? I mean, even if they had Bibles and FOF workbooks, most of them couldn't read or write. Most of the first century population was illiterate. I mean, it gets worse, folks. They did not have a Starbucks. I mean, how is anyone discipled without a Starbucks? Apparently, they had a proven ancient method. That needs to be revived. A proven ancient method that goes beyond books and workbooks and tapes and CDs. And actually that Starbucks version is pretty close to it. That ancient method is imitation. And example setting. Turning your Bibles to first Thessalonians. We're in. Our series on three marks of a model church, an exemplary church, a pace setting church. Today is part four of that. And we're looking at the third mark, the third sign, the third evidence of a model church. And that is a model church is a church of imitation and a church of example setting or it's an exemplary church. I want to read in First Thessalonians, chapter one, verses six through ten to Set before you now as we begin, he says there to these Christians, you also became imitators of us. That's Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. Verse one, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Just a quick time out. I'm going to keep going in a minute. But the word anything in Greek is the word ti, ti. It's just two letters. And I just say we, we have no need to say boo. I mean, we have no need to say ti. That's what Paul says there. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols 
to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. A model church is a church of imitation and example setting. As I shared with you several weeks ago, this really forms a great chain. Each person in this chain, each Christian in this chain is a link. And there's an upstream to this and a downstream. And the upstream is every Christian should be looking upstream, imitating someone in their faith. Really more than one person. Looking at a human being, flawed, of course, not perfect, of course, not glorified, and yet things about their life that we can, we can mimic, we can imitate. And then as we do that, there's a downstream aspect to this. There is the fact that as we imitate this person, we're setting an example for this person. And these things go together, and as you have a group of people who are doing each one of those, then you form this chain Throughout Christian history, all the way until Jesus comes. In other words, you could say when those who mimic are mimicked, links are added to the chain. Links are strengthened in the chain. So we begin with imitation, as Paul says here in verse 6. And it is always where we should begin. This is really countercultural. We're not a culture of, of imitators, at least on the uh, on the surface, or if we listen to our words, we're, we're a culture of wanting to be pioneers and trendsetters and inventors. And, and we prize and value things in our culture like innovation and cutting edge. And yet this is, this is Western. This is American. This is, this is really part of the problem with our culture is we are too privatized and too individualized. In our, in our world, it's, it's usually all about the individual and not about the team, not about the group, not about the community. And so here is something that we're going to start with that is really against the grain of how we've been taught to function in our day and age and in our culture. Before we can ever set an example for someone else, we need to be imitating one who is ahead of us, one who is more mature than us. One who is more Christ-like than us. Paul says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So I want you to notice, first of all, that imitation always needs to come before example. But there's something else here that's interesting. It's of us and of the Lord. This word imitation is used six times in the New Testament, and it's always positive. Always positive. So there's three things we can see about it here. The who, what, and the how. Who is being imitated? He says, of us and of the Lord. And beloved, that's the normal, proper order. If you think about these folks, they were new believers. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy came to them, shared the gospel with them. And so at that moment, those three people were the only Christians they knew. Those three people were the only Bible they knew. They were the gospel, in a sense, through human agency. They were the only Christ they would ever see. They didn't have discipleship guides. They didn't have read through the Bible plans. And so what they had was Paul, Silvanus and Timothy who said to them, follow us as we follow the Lord, who said to them, let me show you how to be a hardworking Christian. Let me show you how to be a holy Christian. Let me show you how to be a loving Christian. And so Paul and his trio there were with them long enough 
to set an example for them in the daily practical matters of life. How do you handle money? How do you pray? How do you talk to an unbeliever? How do you respond to people who don't believe like you do? And on and on it goes. And so he says, you became imitators of us. This would have been a a broad scope of imitation, though he will narrow down into one area in a moment. But I want you to see this is the normal order. It is altogether appropriate for a new Christian to start off with imitating a human being. And as you grow as a Christian, as you learn the word, as you grow in your Christian maturity, that imitation can over time transfer to the Lord. It can transfer to an imitation of Christ. You know, the sooner the better, right? The sooner the better. But this is a normal way people learn. This is how children learn. They imitate their parents. It's how they learn to talk. It's how they learn to function in the world. It's about imitation. But at some point, we want them to grow up and be their own people. At some point, they don't need to continue to imitate their parents. And they move on out in life. And so that's an analogy for us here as Christians. Of us and of the Lord. Now, what was being imitated? He says, having received the word, he speaks there of the gospel. The message of the gospel, having received the word in much tribulation. This is the what of their imitation. The word tribulation there means to be narrow. It means to be pressed in. It means to be hemmed in, kind of trapped, feeling like you're imprisoned. And and then it becomes a word that is translated stress or distressed or pressured. So these believers, verse six. Receive the gospel amid much pressure not to receive the gospel. Amid much opposition. It was not comfortable for them to become Christians. It was not safe for them to become believers in Christ. To accept this message. Paul had said in one of his missionary journeys in the same region of the world. He said to those believers, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so it would be for the Thessalonian church. When they became Christians, they went against their culture. They went against their parents, grandparents and great grandparents. They went against their employer. Spouses went against husbands and wives. They were swimming upstream. They counted the cost and they cast their lots for Jesus Christ. Unashamedly and boldly, as we will see. All of the other geese were flying south and they were flying north. They were strange birds indeed. They were unaccepted and what they were doing was unacceptable because it was casting condemnation on all of the false gods and all of the false religion that these people had been taught and lived and breathed for centuries, for centuries. And these folks heard the truth, loved the truth, embraced the truth, believed the truth and became an imitator of the apostles In this, if you were a Jewish person and you became a Christian, you would have faced extreme distress. These were some radical Jews in Thessalonica. They loved their Judaism and they would chase down the apostle 40 miles away to continue to persecute him, even after they ran him out of their fair city. And so, you know, if you were a Jewish person and you're you accepted Christ, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. You might lose your job. You might lose your family inheritance. You might lose your living arrangements. Everything was at stake for these folks to become a Christian. If you were a Gentile, it was no easier for you because it was a spiritual religious place. And so your fellow Gentiles worshipped false gods and and that would have been a, a rebuke of them. 
And so they would have persecuted you as well. You have became became imitators of us and of the Lord, having welcomed, having received the gospel in much pressure and much affliction. And then look at this last part of the how really how they did this. Verse six, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is where they they imitated the apostles. So Paul and Silas and Timothy had been persecuted. They had been beaten. They had suffered for the gospel, right? In Philippi, before they got to Thessalonica. And so you're, he says, you're imitating us in this. We had joy in the midst of our suffering. Yes, our circumstances are one of distress, but our attitude is one of joy. It's, it's counterintuitive. It makes no sense how this can be possible apart from or other than the Holy Spirit. That's where joy means delight. They delightfully suffered because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing this, they were following some human examples that God had put in front of them. Perhaps Paul and Silas still bore the bruises, bore the scars, bore the marks. And yet they came there and continued to preach the very message that got them in so much trouble. And you know, by the way Paul is writing this, that they did that, joy, they did that joyfully, not begrudgingly. And so this always will start with human examples, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if we put a human being on a pedestal, if we make too much of them, if we think they're perfect, if we, if we elevate our leaders or our example setters too highly, yes, that's the problem. But as long as we keep things balanced and in perspective, there's nothing wrong with following people to imitate them, to imitate how they serve the Lord, to imitate how they pray, to imitate how they do devotional life, to imitate how they function in marriage, to imitate them as parents if you're a new parent. In fact, I say not only is there nothing wrong with it, there's something huge right with it. And it's the way we're going to perpetuate the Christian faith. But he goes on and he says it was also of the Lord, of the Lord. And this is always the second phase of our imitation. So we have to think in terms now, how was Jesus an example of receiving the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Now, obviously, he was the word. He came preaching the gospel. He didn't have to receive it like we do as sinners. But there is a truth here. There is a parallel truth. And I think it's this. I think Paul is reminding us that there was nothing easy about the life and ministry of Jesus. That his whole life was one of suffering. His whole life was one of swimming upstream against the current. I mean, he was the only sinless person on the planet. He didn't fit in anywhere. He was the very son of God who came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life, die for our sins, rose from the dead. He came on a mission but his mission was a difficult, difficult mission. We could we could say that Jesus obeyed God against the grain of constant unjust suffering, unjust suffering, whether it was ridicule, whether it was a glance, whether it was a tone of voice, whether it was a snide comment by one of his brothers. You know, they called him crazy. They called him demon possessed. They called him a drunkard. They called him a glutton and all of this long before he got to Jerusalem and the cross. Everything about his life was a life of suffering, and yet he did it with joy. As we read the Gospels, we will see that Jesus walked in the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
we will see that he regularly worshipped God. He didn't check out on God because his life was hard. He didn't leave the synagogue. He was in the synagogue. He was in the temple. He was doing what he was supposed to do because he wanted to do those things. We can see in the Gospels that he rejoiced without ceasing. He lifted his voice in prayer and praise to God. He prayed with thanksgiving. Several times in the Gospels, we read the words, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. We know that Jesus endured ridicule. We know from Hebrews that he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And he would have done this joyfully. And so ultimately, our imitation is of the Lord. You and I must become Emmanuel imitators. We must become Messiah mimics. And this needs to be the focus of our Christian life. What is the normal pat answer when a Christian is suffering and they ask someone for advice? A, a Christian is suffering pressure, affliction, hemmed in on every side. And they go to a brother or sister and they say, I, I, need, I need advice. Now, here is the pat kind of Sunday school answer. Pray, read your Bible and go to church. Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But do we ever say in that situation, you need to imitate as the solution? Yes, pray. Yes, read your Bible. Yes, go to church. But what about imitating someone else? What about imitating the Lord? So I ask you a question. When you are hemmed in on every side, who do you imitate? That's what this would teach us. Again, it's 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 counterculture and it's just different from how we think. Here is your assignment. Here's my assignment. Find a joyful believer in the midst of affliction and get to know him or her so you can imitate him or her. Find a joyful believer who is in the midst of affliction. So that you have someone to imitate. And I would say especially do this if you're afflicted right now, especially if you're in trial right now. Do I want you to stop praying, reading your Bible and coming to your church? Of course not. But do I want you to find a human example? Absolutely. Because, beloved, this is discipleship. Life on life is the biblical model of disciple making. Observing. Asking questions, getting close enough to a person's life to see them going through some things so that you can learn from that individual. How are they doing it? How are they bearing up under it in this situation? You know, you've heard the, the phrase. No one really knows who coined this. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. You've heard that, right? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Well, I want to coin a new phrase this morning, and you can go ahead and, and give me the credit when it's so popular, you know, like 50 years from now, you'll know where it came from. Imitation is the highest form of discipleship. Imitation is the highest form of discipleship. You see, it goes so far beyond a workbook, doesn't it? You know what workbooks are for? In the context of discipleship, you can use anything as long as it's not heresy. Just anything to get people together, to get guys together, to get ladies together, face to face, talking, living life together. The book is secondary. The topic is incidental. It's about coming together and living life in the body. 
Now, with a proper imitation in place of us and of the Lord. We are now and only now ready to set an example for someone else. Only as we look upstream to the right models, can we be the right model? Paul goes on and he says, so that you became there's a lot of becoming here. Do you notice that? That's the Christian life. A lot of becoming. You became imitators and you became an example. Verse seven to all the believers. In Macedonia and in Achaia. This word example is the word impression. It's the word that a stamp made by a die. So you have a hard die that you want to create an impression of something. You get some soft clay and you tap it or you press it into that clay. And that's the word right here. It's tupas. It's type. It's model. Example. Pattern. You got something to follow. What Paul is telling us is that the Thessalonians left a permanent spiritual mark on their entire region. They left a permanent spiritual mark on the churches of Philippi and the churches in Berea. That's Macedonia and the church in Corinth. That's Achaia and the believers in Athens. We don't even know if a church formed there because there weren't very many. They left a mark on their generation, on their day. By imitating the Lord and the apostles with the joy of the Holy Spirit, they became an example, something exemplary. People could look at their life and say, I can follow that. I can model that. I like that. That looks like Christ. That looks like Christ. That's that's praiseworthy. I can mimic that and I'll be okay. And they did this in such a profound way that all of the believers in these two large regions of ancient Greece were affected. Now, what was that mark? What was the impression they left on the clay of their society? Beloved, it was this, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning. It was enthusiastic evangelism. This church was filled with individuals enthused to share the gospel with others. Look at verse 8. Here it is. Here's the example for the word of the Lord, the gospel, the message has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. This word sounded forth. It's only used this one time in all the Greek New Testament. It's a wonderful word. It means rang out. It's the word that you would describe a trumpet being played and the sound echoing out, ringing out, sounding forth. Paul says this is a word that would describe thunder in the hills. This church was thundering the gospel. They were trumpeting the gospel. They were ringing out with the good news of Christ. A good translation would be they reverberated the gospel from their lives near and far, loud and clear. We have a little office back there in our library and we needed Wi-Fi back there uh, a few years ago. And so we have a, a Wi-Fi signal here in our building, but it wasn't strong enough to reach through the walls and glass and so forth to the to the library. So we have a company come out and they. They put this this little thing outside my office up there outside. You can see it from the courtyard. It's just a little thing like this mounted up there. And then there's a there's another one over in the library of a different sort. 
And all that is is a booster. It just takes our signal and it amplifies it. It, it rings it out. It boosts the signal so that it'll reach to the library. That's what we're to be with the gospel. We're to be like an amplifier. We're to be like an amplifier on a sound system, making it loud and clear. Paul says to this church that was so strategically located, remember where they were? They're on the ignition way. They're on the main road from Rome to the Orient. Major thoroughfare. And they're also on a port. It is a port city, a commercial city. A city of politics and education and business. And there they were. They were like, as believers now, they were like loudspeakers on the crossroads of life, on the crossroads of business, on the crossroads of commerce, on the crossroads of politics. They were like loudspeakers, not condemning their culture, but announcing good news to their culture, not pointing out everything that was wrong with their culture, but pointing to the solution for all sinners, no matter what we look like on the outside. They were so enthused in their gospel witness that Paul basically says, great, I'm unemployed as a missionary. Thanks a lot. I am now officially done in all of Macedonia in Achaia. We're talking about 90,000 square miles. We're talking about a region that is about a third the size of the state of Texas. Whoa. Paul is indulging in hyperbole here, intentional exaggeration to make a point, to heighten the encouragement. You know, you, you, you knocked it out of the park, you know, hyperbole to heighten the encouragement and to say how much of an example these folks were. This is how far reaching was their witness. Paul is basically saying we're done here. We've got to move on because everybody we talk to already knows. Now, this we can't take this in a literal sense that there's not a single individual in 90,000 square miles that hadn't heard the gospel. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's just been pervasive. It's been unashamed. It's been bold. And it's traveling from your place. Now, I just stop and go, time out. I mean, how is this possible? Will you enter into this with me a little bit? How is this possible? I mean, they didn't even have the Jesus film. Hmm. There were no mass crusades. They didn't have Billy Graham. They did not have an evangelism class. They didn't have an evangelistic program in their church. They didn't have a pastor of evangelism. They didn't have an organized campaign of any kind. They had no tracks to hand people. There was no radio messages going out to invite people to us to a to an event. There was no social media. They had no Awana to reach the children, no Sunday school programs. There were no soup kitchens. There were no prison ministries. How did this happen? What did they have? They had a mouth. Period. These folks couldn't even write it in a letter to someone else and send it to them. They had a changed heart and a mouth attached to the changed heart. That's all they had. And Paul says, the word of the Lord has thundered from you. These were just joyful new Christians telling everyone they could about Jesus. Look at the first part of verse 9. 
Paul says, for they themselves, he's talking about the churches in these regions, the Christians in these regions. He says they themselves report about us, the missionaries, what kind of welcome or reception we had with you. How would how would Paul even know this? Likely he's making a reference here to Timothy and Silas. Timothy had gone to Thessalonica and come back to Corinth and on his journeys, he could say, Paul, Paul. Everywhere I go, they're talking about what happened in Thessalonica. And Silas goes to Philippi and he travels back to Corinth. And it's the same thing. And then look who shows up in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla from Rome because they got kicked out of Rome by the Caesar. And so they show up in Corinth to work alongside Paul. And they're saying everywhere we go, we can't keep hearing about the reception, the reception to the gospel at Thessalonica. How you guys were welcomed, how they embraced you, how they listened to you, how they believed the message of this Messiah crucified, Messiah risen. And then they could not keep their mouths shut. They said, hey, what do we got to lose? You know, we've done come out from everything. We're exposed here. We're no longer the pagan worshipers in the pagan temples. We're no longer the, the Jews who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. What do we got to lose? All they had was their mouth. And look how effective it was. Are we leaving this mark? Are we leaving this impression? In Kerrville? In our daily circles, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, on our sports teams? Are we leaving this impression in the clay that God has put before us. I've been mightily challenged and convicted by this passage this week. I want to say to you with all brokenness before you and all humility with you that it is time for KBC to shed our image of being missions minded, but not personally evangelistic. It is time that we combine personal evangelism with check writing and personal evangelism with elder meetings and personal evangelism with Bible studies and mission board meetings, and deacon board meetings. Here's my take on KBC as I see it. Many of us imitate the Lord in bearing up well under trial. Many of us are good examples in doing good stuff to be good Christians. But we lack as a church enthusiastic evangelism. Oh, we have exponential excuses. But I'm not so sure we have enthusiastic evangelism. We talk. It's not like we don't talk. Our mouths work just fine. We're just not talking about what Jesus did for us. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think sometimes we're too private and we're too introverted. And dare I say it, we're too Calvinistic. To be enthusiastically evangelistic. As even he was. The bottom line is we should all, all of us, every single Christian without exception should enthusiastically share their faith with other people. The truth is that every single one of us should engage unbelievers in the plan of salvation. 
There's nothing that can be debated about that statement. This is not something you hire away as a church. This is not something that you write checks for the missionaries to do. This is something we are called to do. Every one of us. Every one of us who claim the name of Christ. The truth is, all of us should be on the hunt. All of us should be on the lookout. All of us should be on the trail to tell someone new what Jesus did on the cross for us. Beloved, we cannot come in here once a month and celebrate this table with integrity if we are not telling somebody what Jesus did on the cross for us. If we are not willing to put ourselves out there and tell someone that we need a real hard examination, do we really believe it? Because you're going to tell people what you believe. You're going to tell people about what you believe in. And I will, too. I'm preaching to myself. There's one finger here and three back this way. All right. (laughs) Three times is guilty. This is the reality of the Christian life. If the gospel is going to go forth in the circles that God wants it to go forth, it has to be everybody in the army doing it. Everybody has got to play their part. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what he did on the cross? Have we left our first love? You see, I fear that our impression here is shallow. I fear our impression here is blurry, that it wasn't distinct. It's not pressed in. And so it's just not clear what the mark is, what the example or the pattern is here on this front as a church. I feel, I feel like if, there's, if there is one great weakness of Kerbal Bible Church, this, beloved, is it. This is it. If there's one thing that each one of us, to a man and to a woman, need to take ownership of and change our ways, this is it. How distracted and dull of heart can we be? How caught up in the temporary and the shallow and the meaningless can we be? How sad is it, beloved, that we are so passionate about so many things that don't matter and care so little for souls bound in sin? How sad is that? How tra- you want to hear a tragedy? That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Look at verse eight. Could verse eight be written about us as a church? Could it be written about you and me for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you? Could God say that about us? Why can't we be this kind of church? Is this just something that only certain personalities can do do you have to have the gift of evangelism to evangelize why can't we be like them i mean what did they have that we don't have what did they have that we don't have they had the gospel we have the gospel they had conversions we have conversions they had the holy spirit we have the holy spirit In fact, we have more than they had. We got the whole Bible. We got the whole message. And we got endless tools and resources. What did they have that we don't have? Nothing. Not one thing. We have no excuse. None whatsoever. 
You know, one of the most godly things you might ever do in your life is not sign up for a Bible study. And carve out that time to evangelize your neighbor. Carve out that time to go to Starbucks, have coffee with someone. That could be one of the most godly, loving things you could ever do in your life. He's all but my brothers and sisters might judge me. They might see who I'm hanging out with. They might look down upon me because I didn't come to their Bible study. Let's be imitators of the Lord. Who did he hang out with? Did he care what people thought about him? Who was he trying to please? We're going to have to change our ways to have the word of the Lord sound forth from us. Ministry is messy. It's never clean and sterile and antiseptic. It's messy. It's smelly. It's uncomfortable. We've got to be willing to be uncomfortable, to be rejected. To be rejected by the person we're trying to reach, to be judged by the people who are already reached. Let's pray. Father, may there be a wave of spirit-wrought repentance, spirit-wrought commitment. May there be a spirit-inspired burden for our city. Lord, we have everything we need because you're so good to us. You're so kind to us. We have every tool and every resource available to us. So we just ask you today, Lord, to just grow the brokenness and the burden of our heart. We pray that you'd make Curvo Bible Church like the first church of the Thessalonians. That the gospel would sound forth from this place and from these people. Will you just take a moment to uh, commit yourself to this task? Will you take a moment to commit yourself to this privilege? Ask for God's help. Pray for someone who needs Jesus. In your circles. Pray for that messed up person. That broken person. Pray that God would break your heart for them. Father, help us to never be guilty of building our kingdom while we fail to build your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.